here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 104.4 FM in Durban. Okay, so we continue with our discussion on COVID-19 and we, we have promised that we're going to continue doing this because so little is known about this. This is a new virus. Uh, even medical practitioners themselves to keep discovering things every single day. There's there's trial and error going on here. So it's very important for us as, as well to be, um, you know, just to understand as much as we can about the virus. So now we're going to be having what I would term a generic conversation we've moved from the vaccine to now a, a, a bigger conversation which is where you also can come in with your questions just with your own concerns 891 professor mark mendelson who's a professor of infectious diseases at the university of cape town and uh, infectious disease specialist at kotaskid hospital as well joins us now on the line prof thank you so much for joining us and making the time to talk to us Pleasure, Pamela. Good afternoon and good afternoon to listeners. Prof, from when um, the virus was, I suppose, discovered last year, very late last year, to now, what have we learned so far? Well, we've learned that it's extremely good at infecting. Um, It's transmissible. We're currently sitting in a pandemic, as you know, Mm. um, with over 3 million um, infections. We've learned that still, um, even from you know the, the first studies in the beginning up to now, we're still looking at about 80% of people who are infected who have symptoms, having very mild symptoms. We've learned that there's also an appreciable number who are infected but don't have any symptoms at all. And we've learned that of those that do um, go on to a more severe disease, um, that a very small percentage will require uh, critical care. Um, a, a, a larger number who are admitted to hospital will not go in, into the ICU. They'll be managed on the wards. Um, and we're gaining experience in, in that across the country. and. Uh, seeing some good results, Um, but there are a small percentage of patients who will go on to um, get very severe disease, and we're really trying very hard now to keep people out of the ICU um, because we know that if you do go into the ICU and need ventilation, that the outcomes are poorer. And then we've also learned a lot about about, uh, illnesses that can predispose to um, to getting severe disease. So we know about the comorbidities, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and uh, a number of immunosuppressive illnesses. Um, and really, we've learned a lot about the infection prevention and control um, around what we need to do and what we need to put in place as a, as a country um, and as individuals to try and protect ourselves from actually getting the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, which causes COVID-19, um, and to try and reduce that in the workplace. So if we shut out the political noise for a minute from a, at a global level, uh, from a scientific point of view with your colleagues, 
Is there a coordinated effort amongst yourselves working towards the same thing to try and get to the same outcome? In other words, are people and countries working in silos in health, in health, uh, um, um, in your health professions, or do you feel that there is enough coordinated efforts? so that we get to uh, an outcome quicker? Because I'm sure if there was, we, we would all be, we'll get there sooner. Do you feel that that, that is happening internationally? I think, I think there are some very good examples of um, international efforts and collaboration. Uh, you, you just had uh, discussions with Professor Dyack on, on one study. But uh, an example would be the, the World Health Organization Solidarity Trial, which is trialing studying some antiviral medicines and that's across many countries and within South Africa uh, we are participants as well across many centers so there's um, definitely collaboration there um, President Ramaphosa is leading you know in the African Union and we're seeing uh, collaborative efforts there but we're also learning from other countries and their experiences uh, and I think uh, South Africa coming in slightly later to the uh, pandemic than other countries can learn from uh, experiences elsewhere. I part of the reason why I was asking you this, and I and I do understand, and I fully hear what you're saying with the coordinated efforts that we see, especially coming from uh, WHO. But what I'm what where I've got a problem, and there's a slight disconnect for me, is if it were the case then why wouldn't everybody adopt sort of the same measures to manage even our population behaviors? So, for instance, you have some countries that very early on were very clear about use of masks and it was legislated that you're not even allowed to leave your home uh, in, uh, without a mask. And they were very successful. I'm, I'm looking at how we're not all adopting the same behavior at the same time with the same reasoning, and if that was coordinated, maybe would be more successful? Well, Pamela, I mean, largely it's around the fact that the evidence base for these interventions, you know, has, is either not there or has been growing. So if you've got an evidence base which shows that an intervention definitely works, mm -hmm. then you would expect all countries... Um, to adopt those, okay. in in particularly if they were able to, you know, resources and everything permitting. Mm. But you know, the, as you as you mentioned uh, previously, we're now sort of five months, uh, just five months into the to this um, evolving pandemic, and we're learning very quickly and having to adapt very quickly. So, I think there are a lot of unified interventions that have happened in other. In, in all countries of the world, the appreciation about social distancing, which is, of course, physical distancing is really what we're talking about. Yeah. The transmission of the virus requiring that, you know, to socially distance to protect ourselves. The issues of hand hygiene and all, all the interventions that are necessary that uh, I'm sure all your listeners already know. But, um, you know, that is being universally adopted. The nuances of the strategy um, of different countries um, talks in part to their resources, in part to their modelling and projections, and in part to you know their social um, setups and the and the sort of groups they have. 
All right. We've got some questions, Prof, if you don't mind taking. Um, here is one from a WhatsApp note. It says, Pimelo, when one recovers from COVID-19, does it mean that the virus is destroyed or laying dormant? Um, thanks. That's a very good question and one that concerns many people. Um, it's not the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the coronavirus, isn't one of the viruses which lies dormant in the body. There are a family of viruses, the herpes virus families, you know, so if you have cold sores, you can have a cold sore and then it goes away and then it may come back and goes away and may come back. So that's not the same for the coronaviruses. Um, When you're infected with the the coronavirus, you have an acute infection. Um, And then what we don't know yet um, is uh, around the immunity to further infection from a coronavirus again. So can you be reinfected? Um, we think that, there, well, that if, if you mount an antibody response to, to the virus, then um, we think that that will be protective for a period, but we don't know, A, the period that it will be protective for, and B, the level of protection. Um, so the, it's not a dormant virus. Mm. Um, and we think that people who are infected who recover Um, may have some protective immunity for a period, but we have to learn, you know, exactly how long that is and from studies that are going to be needed to be to be done and are already sort of started to be ongoing. Does that assumption just come from the fact that your body would just be familiar with the virus? Is that sort of where the basis of that comes from? Well, the basis that comes from is is from experience with other viruses, including other coronaviruses that you know, that actually are common in, in infecting in the population um, already. I mean, this isn't the first coronavirus um, that's been identified. There are a number that cause the common cold. Mm. Um, and then there's the SARS uh, virus and, the, and MERS virus, which were previous uh, epidemics. But we know with, with viruses um, that um, produce antibodies and some protection, that there is a period of protection um, influenza, for example, um, does give you, once you've had influenza, does give you some, some pr- um, protection. But then the influenza virus itself changes in the popul- in, uh, uh, from season to season. And that's why we need influenza vaccines um, on an annual basis. But this coronavirus, um, we think, will probably give some protection if you've had it. Um, but again, we don't know for how long um, and to what degree. Is the concern like the common flu that we we are familiar with that we've just spoken about now, that this virus in itself, as you said, you know, there are many different types of coronaviruses, that it will also change form, you know, going forward so regularly that we, we, we're going to find ourselves with a very difficult time in managing it? No, no we don't. No, we don't think so. I mean, it, viruses do change um you know as humans change you know when we reproduce our our offsprings are not identical to ourselves um and therefore it's the same for viruses um that there is there is change naturally but the the majority of the 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 studies to date um suggest that this coronavirus that's causing covid isn't changing um at a particularly certainly not at at a at a high speed uh, in fact, it's in most of the studies, it's very, very stable. So I don't think it's so much the issue that we're at 
I mean, again, that this is all, of course, you know, being learned and, 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 and is in development, but that's not really the, the issue that, uh, that concerns us particularly at the moment. All right. We've got a voice note question for you, Prof. Let's just listen in. Hi, this is Vio and Pizana. Uh, I have uh, one question. Uh, there are rumors that uh, there is no accurate testing for this virus. So what they say is it's about 70% accurate. That means if someone has any other a flu, a bird flu, or any other disease, he can test positive. So how can, is this true? If it's true, then it may be also true that this whole virus is, uh, is being exaggerated. And the reason they give is why only old people are dying for this and people who are sick. Prof, your response to that? Okay, so, um, so, so, yeah, um, the, the test, the test that is being done for uh, COVID-19 is a test which we call a, a PCR. So you have a swab taken um, from the nose um, and that is taken to the laboratory and we do a special test called a PCR. Now, that PCR, what it basically does is it is able to identify specific um, parts of the coronavirus that are only in that coronavirus. So it's extremely specific. So that test will not pick up influenza. It will not pick up any of the uh, other viruses. So when you have a positive test for COVID-19, that is a specific test. And we are absolutely happy that we are picking up um, the, the virus that causes COVID-19, not influenza or anything else. What, what your listener, I think, was alluding to is that um, there's almost no test that is 100% sensitive. In other words, mm. if you do the test, will you pick up absolutely everybody that has the infection? Because there's lots of different variables that can go wrong from the type of sample that's uh, taken, if you're not getting a good... Uh, nasal sample. So if you don't put the swab in, um, you know, far enough, for example, you're not getting a good specimen. If it takes a long time to get us to a laboratory, um, it may not be um, uh, as sensitive. If there are problems with the laboratory test itself, then again, that will affect the sensitivity. It won't affect the specificity. In other words, that you're picking up the coronavirus. It'll just mean that there will be some people that may be positive, in fact, but test negative. And that's um, so, so-called um, a, a false negative. So, no, we're definitely not picking up other viruses um, and other illnesses with the tests that we're doing. But uh, I, I would agree, it's fair to say, that the sensitivity, the pickup of the test, in other words, you know, you're not picking up absolutely everybody who's got COVID-19 because the test isn't 100% sensitive. We also know, though, Prof, that there are other types of tests that are out there in the market. Could you just maybe talk us through why this was our test of choice as a country? So this, the test we're, we're talking about, this PCR test, is the test that we need to diagnose people who have acute infections with the coronavirus. In other words, are, are actually now having symptoms and we want to find out whether it's the coronavirus. And the reason for that is that when we become symptomatic, in other words, when we have the respiratory illness, 
then that's when the virus, the maximal time, peak time that the virus is actually being shed in our upper airways. Mm. So when we, act, when we take the sample, we want to test for the virus itself. And that's what the PCR test does. There's also a test that's been getting a lot of attention called, and it's generally we call them serology tests. And as I said, when we were talking about the protection, when you have a viral infection, it, uh, many days later, your body starts to respond in a particular way to produce proteins, uh, types of proteins in the blood, which are called antibodies. Mm. And if you take the blood of somebody who's, ha who's had coronavirus, then you can sometimes pick up the antibodies, depending on the, mm. on the timing, because those antibodies take time to develop. They don't develop in at the time that you have the symptoms generally. Mm -hmm. And that's why serology tests or antibody tests are not good tests for somebody who has the symptoms and you want to diagnose the acute infection. Mm -hmm. They're very good for uh, doing mass sort of surveillance, surveillance um, studies where you're taking a large amount of the population later in the, in, the pan, in the epidemic in South Africa. If we want to see who may have been infected, that's one way of doing it, although there are problems with these tests. You know, each test has its own problems, but yeah. that's the theory. It's used not for acute diagnosis, whereas the PCR test, the test that you're having samples taken from the nose, um, and that is a different test, and that's specific for the diagnosis. Prof, I know you've got to go. I've just got two more qu questions for you. One from a voice note. Let's just, just play it quickly for you. Sure. Hi there. Benji here. Uh, about this virus thing, they say in Tanzania, the president requested a test with cow blood and uh, some other juices blood or juices claiming to kind of trying to validate the test and the test showed positive for COVID. Are these tests fake or what? Thank you, Benji. All right. Um, I'm also just going to take a quick call so that you can respond to all of them at the same time. William in Free State, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Pamela. Yes, I wanted to find out from the professor about the transmission of this virus because it's all new. We don't know anything about it. In terms of the transmission uh, from one person to uh, another person, because this virus, is, you are told that it's available from the sputum, from the saliva. But my question is, why is it not, why is it not available, it's not been seen in seminal fluid? Thanks very much for that, William. Prof, Thank would you. you like to respond to both the questions? Um, Certainly. I, I'll, I'll respond to William's first. I had, a, I had difficulty hearing Benji's, but so William, um, yes. So this is a, this virus causes a respiratory illness um, and therefore the maximal amount of the virus sits in our upper airways and also in our lower airways. But we know that there's a lot in our upper airways. So the saliva, um, the secretions, the droplets from the upper airways when you cough and sneeze and talking and in saliva as well, you know, if you're coughing and bringing up spit, uh, sputum, sorry, and bringing up spit, the virus is there. Mm. Now, when you have um, virus in the seminal fluid, in, so in genital secretions, that's, often, that's much more common in viruses that get into the blood. Mm. 
and then get into other areas of the body, including the genital urinary tract, um, or in sexually transmitted viruses, um, obviously like HIV. So respiratory viruses don't often end up in the genital fluids. And we know also that this virus doesn't tend to end up in the blood very much. It's really very localized to the, um, to the airways. Um, Benji's um, question, uh, I think, was in around something, something happening in Tanzania where the president um, used cow blood. Is that right, Pamela? Yes, something like that, yes. Um, I, I'm not sure. The test, um, the test in blood... I mean, obviously, when the, the only time we're using blood for testing, as I, as I sort of mentioned, is for this antibody, this serology test, which uh, might tell you whether you have been infected with um, the, the coronavirus previously. Um, I, I, animals, there has been some um, descriptions of uh, infection with, with this virus uh, in certain animals, um, but that's not a, a that really isn't playing uh, an, a role in the human epidemic, um, and we, we definitely wouldn't use um, cow blood uh, for any sort of the, any of the tests. Prof, really appreciate the time you've given us. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Mark Middleton, who is a professor of infectious diseases at the University of Cape Town, an infectious disease specialist at Khotesgir Hospital. Thank you very, very much for that. And thank you too also for your questions.